Section 27 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, Book 3, The Convention. Chapter 1, The Convention. 1. We are approaching the summit. The convention is before our eyes, and in the presence of this lofty eminence the gaze grows steady. Nothing more towering ever rose above the human horizon. There is but one Himalaya, but one convention. The convention may perhaps be called the culminating point in history. During its lifetime, an assembly actually lives. One did not realize what it was. Its supreme grandeur was not appreciated by its contemporaries, who were too much terrified to be dazzled. Mediocrities and moderate hills levy no severe tax on one's admiration. But the majestic inspires a holy horror. Whether it be the majesty of genius or of a mountain, an assembly or a masterpiece, too close proximity excites alarm. Every peak seems exaggerated, the ascent is fatiguing, and one loses breath in climbing its sharp acclivities, misses his footing on the slopes, and is wounded by the cragged surfaces, which in themselves are beauties. The foaming torrent indicates the presence of the chasm, the summit is veiled in clouds. Whether ascending or descending, it is equally frightful. Hence one feels the influence of terror rather than of admiration, a kind of aversion to grandeur, which is a strange enough sensation. While gazing on the abyss, one cannot always appreciate its sublimity. The monster is more evident than the miracle. It was thus that men first judged the convention. The purblind undertook to fathom an abyss whose depths could only be sounded by the eagle. Today we behold it in the perspective outlining the granite profile of the French Revolution against the calm and tragic background of the faraway heavens. 2. The 14th of July set the nation free. The 10th of August hurled its thunderbolts. The 21st of September founded a new era. For the 21st of September was the equinox, the equilibrium, Libra, the balance scales of justice. According to the remark of Rome, the Republic was proclaimed beneath this sign of equality and justice, heralded, so to speak, by a constellation. The Convention is the first avatar of the people. It was the Convention that turned the new and glorious page, introducing the future of today. Every idea requires a visible embodiment. Every principle needs a habitation. A church means the four walls within which the Almighty has his dwelling place. Every dogma must have its temple. When the convention became a fact, the first problem was to locate it. At first it was established in the Manege, but afterwards at the Tuileries. Here they raised a platform and arranged scenery, painted in grey, by David, also rows of benches and a square tribune. There were parallel pilasters with massive plinths, and long rectangular stems, and square enclosures, into which the multitude crowded, and which were called public tribunes a Roman valerium, and Grecian draperies. And amid these right angles and straight lines the convention was installed, a tempest confined within geometrical limits. On the tribune the red cap was painted in grey. At first the royalists ridiculed this grey bonnet rouge, this artificial hall, this pasteboard monument, this sanctuary of papier-mâché, this pantheon of mud and spittle. How quickly it was destined to vanish! The pillars were made of barrel staves, the arches of thin deal boards, the bas-reliefs were mastic, the entablature was of pine, the statues were of plaster, the marble was painted, the walls were of canvas. And in this provisional shelter France has recorded deeds that can never be forgotten. During the early sessions of the convention, the walls of the Hall of the Manege were covered with the advertisements with which Paris swarmed at the time of the return from Varennes. On one might be read, the king returns, whoever applauds him will be chastised, whoever insults him will be hung. On another, peace, keep your hats on your heads, he is about to pass before his judges. On another, the king took aim at the nation, but his weapon hung fire, now the nation has its turn. On another, the law, the law! It was within these walls that the convention sat in judgment on Louis Sixteenth. At the Tuileries, now called the Palais National, where the convention had held its sessions from the 10th of May, 1793, the assembly hall occupied the space between the Pavilion de l'Horloge, called Pavilion Unité, and the Pavilion Marsan, 
called Pavilion Liberté. The Pavilion de Flore was now called Pavilion Égalité. The assembly hall was accessible by the grand staircase of Jean Boulant. The entire ground floor of the palace below the first story, occupied by the assembly, was a kind of long guard room, littered with the luggage and camp beds of the various troops mounting guard over the convention. The assembly had a special guard of honor called the Grenadiers of the Convention. A tricolored ribbon divided the palace occupied by the assembly from the garden where the people passed in and out. 3. Let us finish our description of the assembly hall. Everything concerning this terrible place is of interest. The first object to attract one's attention on entering was a tall statue of liberty, placed between two large windows. This hall, which was formerly the king's theater, had now become the stage of revolution. It was forty-two meters long, ten meters in width, and eleven in height. This elegant and superb hall, built by Vigorani for the use of the courtiers, was hidden beneath the rude timber work which served to support the weight of the people in ninety-three. The only point of support upon which this timber work of the public tribunes rested was a single post, which well deserves honorable mention. This post consisted of one solid piece, ten meters in circumference, and few Caryatids have done an equal amount of work. For years it bore the severe pressure of revolution. It has supported applause, enthusiasm, insult, clamors, and tumults, the tremendous chaos of wrath, the fury of insurrection, and never given way beneath its burden. After the convention it witnessed the Council of the Ancients. On the 18th Brumaire it was relieved. At that time Percier replaced this wooden pillar by columns of marble that did not last so long. An architect's ideal is sometimes peculiar. That of the architect of the Rue de Rivoli was the curved path of a cannonball in its flight. The architect of Karlsruhe conceived the ideal of a fan, and the conception of the architect who built the hall where the convention established itself on the 10th of May, 1793, was apparently a huge bureau drawer, for it was long as well as high and flat. A great semicircle had been added to one of the long sides of the parallelogram. This was the amphitheater with seats for the representatives, but neither tables nor desks. Garan Coulon, who wrote a great deal, used to write resting his paper on his knee. Facing the benches was the tribune, before it the bust of Le Pelletier Saint Fargeau, and behind it the president's armchair. The head of the bust projected slightly above the edge of the tribune, which afterwards was the cause of its removal. The amphitheatre consisted of nineteen semicircular benches, rising one above the other, some of which had been lengthened in order to fit into the corners, by means of other benches cut off for the purpose. In the semicircle beneath, at the foot of the tribunal, were the places of the ushers, and on the other side of the tribune hung a placard nine feet high, set in a black wooden frame, and bearing on its two pages, separated by a kind of scepter, the Declaration of the Rights of Man. On the other side was an empty space which was afterwards occupied by a similar frame containing this constitution of the year two, with the two pages separated by a sword. Above the tribune, over the head of the orator, from a deep loge divided into two compartments and filled with people, floated three immense tricolored banners, arranged in a horizontal position, resting on an altar upon which could be read the following words, The Law! Behind this altar rose, like the sentinel of freedom of speech, an enormous Roman fasces as tall as a column. Two colossal statues, placed erect against the wall, faced the representatives, Lycurgus on the president's right hand, Solon on his left, with Plato towering above the mountain. The statues stood on simple wooden blocks, resting on a long projecting cornice that encircled the hall, separating the people from the assembly. The spectators leaned their elbows on this cornice, the black wooden frame enclosing the proclamation of the rights of man reached to the cornice, interfering with the symmetry of the entablature, an infraction of the straight line that made Chabot growl. It is ugly, he said to Vadier. The heads of the statues were decorated with wreaths of oak and laurel. Green curtains, on which similar wreaths were painted in a deeper shade of the same color, fell in heavy folds from the surrounding cornice, draping the entire lower floor of the hall occupied by the assembly. Above this drapery the wall was white and bare. In this wall, as if carved by a chisel, without molding or ornament, were two stories of public tribunes, the square ones below, the round ones above. According to the rule, for the influence of Vitruvius was still acknowledged, the archivolts were superimposed upon the architraves. 
There were ten tribunes on each of the long sides of the hall, and two huge boxes at both ends, twenty-four in all. There sat the assembled crowd. The spectators in the lower tribunes overflowed their bounds, grouping themselves on every projection along the cornice. A long iron bar, firmly fastened at the point of support, served as a rail to the upper tribunes and protected the spectators from the pressure of the crowds that ascended the stairs. Once, however, a man who was pitched suddenly into the assembly below escaped death by falling partly upon Monsieur, Bishop of Beauvais, whereupon he exclaimed, Really, a bishop has his use then, after all. The hall of the convention was large enough to contain two thousand persons, and on the days of insurrections even three thousand. The convention held two sessions, one during the day and one in the evening. The back of the president's chair was round, studded with gilt nails. His table was supported by four winged monsters with a single foot, who might have been supposed to have come forth from the apocalypse to witness the revolution. They seemed to have been unharnessed from Ezekiel's chariot to drag the tumbril of Samson. On the president's table stood a huge bell, almost as large as a church bell, a big copper inkstand, and a parchment portfolio which contained the record of proceedings. The blood from many a severed head, borne aloft on the end of a pike, has dripped upon this table. Nine steps led to the tribune. These steps were high, steep, and difficult of ascent. Jean Sonnet once tripped in the act of mounting them. "'It is like the staircase of a scaffold,' he said. "'It is well to serve your apprenticeship,' cried Carrier. In the corners of the hall, where the walls seemed rather bare, the architect had placed Roman fasces as ornaments, with the axe bound on the outside. On the right and left of the tribune pedestals supported two candelabra twelve feet high, each bearing four pairs of argand lamps. For each public box there was a similar candelabra, and on the pedestals of these candelabra circles were carved, which the people called guillotine collars. The seats of the assembly, rising almost to the cornice of the tribunes, gave the representatives and the people an opportunity to chat with one another. The exits of the tribunes opened into a labyrinth of corridors, often echoing with wild and tumultuous sounds. The convention, outgrowing the limits of the palace, overflowed into the neighboring hotels of Longueville and Coigny. If we may credit Lord Bradford's letter, it was to the Hotel Coigny that the royal furniture was removed after the 10th of August. It took two entire months to empty the Tuileries. The committees were lodged in the vicinity of the hall, those of legislation, agriculture, and commerce at the Pavilion Egalité, those of the navy, the colonies, finance, assignats, and public safety at the Pavilion Liberté. The committee of war was at the Pavilion Unité. The lodgings of the Committee of General Safety were accessible to those of the public safety through a dark corridor, lighted night and day by a lantern, a passageway for the spies of all parties who came and went, talking in whispers. The bar of the convention had been changed several times. Usually it was at the right hand of the president. At both ends of the hall the two vertical partitions that shut off the concentric semicircles of the amphitheater on the right hand and on the left allowed space enough between partition and wall for two long and narrow passages closed at either end by square doors, which afforded entrance and exit. A door opening upon the terrasse des Fouillantes, and leading directly into the hall, served for the admittance of the representatives. This hall, ineffectually lighted during the day by windows, whose insufficient glimmer was replaced by livid torches when twilight fell, seemed ever shrouded in a night. The lamplight sessions were lugubrious, the artificial light seeming really to increase rather than diminish the darkness. No man could see his neighbor. From all parts of the hall indistinct groups of faces seemed to be mocking each other. People passed one another without recognition. One day Laniello, hastening to the tribune, jostled someone in the descending passage. "'I beg pardon, Robespierre,' he said. "'For whom do you take me?' replied a hoarse voice. "'Excuse me, Marat,' said Laniello. Below, one tribune on either side of the president was reserved, for, strange to say, privileged spectators were admitted to the convention. The draperies of these tribunes, the only ones thus adorned, were caught back to the middle of the architrave by golden cords and tassels. The tribunes of the people were bare. The general effect was stern, unconventional, and yet correct. The union of propriety and fierceness is the essence of a revolutionary life. The hall of the convention presented a perfect example of what artists have since called the Mesidor architecture. It was at once massive and frail. 
The builders of that period mistook symmetry for beauty. The Renaissance had said its last word under Louis XV, and a reaction had set in. The standards of nobility and purity had been so exaggerated that that which was really noble had degenerated into insipidity, and purity itself had become inexpressibly wearisome. Prudery may exist in architecture. After the dazzling orgies of form and color of the 18th century, art had begun a system of diet and allowed itself only a straight line. This style of improvement resulted in ugliness, and art was thereby reduced to a skeleton, a phenomenal condition which is the drawback to this kind of wisdom and abstinence. The style is so strict that it becomes meager. Apart from all political emotion, the mere sight of this architecture made one shiver. Dimly recalling the old theatre, with its garlanded boxes, its ceiling of azure and crimson, its chandelier and girandoles with their prismatic reflections glittering like diamonds, its dove-colored upholstery, the profusion of cupids and nymphs on its curtain and draperies, all that royal and amorous idol, painted, sculptured, and gilded, which once irradiated this gloomy place with its smile, and then casting one's eyes upon these severe rectangular lines, cold and sharp as steel, made one think of Boucher guillotined by David. 4. He who looked upon the assembly utterly forgot the hall. He who witnessed the drama was oblivious to the theatre. Nothing more misshapen, and at the same time sublime. A crowd of heroes, a herd of cowards, wild beasts on the mountain, reptiles in the swamp. There all those combatants, the ghosts of today, swarmed, elbowed each other, quarreling, threatening, fighting, and living out their lives. A convocation of titans. On the right the Gironde, a legion of thinkers. On the left the mountain, a group of athletes. Here might be seen Brissot, to whom the keys of the Bastille had been delivered. Barbaroux, who ruled the Marseillaise, Kerveligan, who had entire control of the battalion of Brest, quartered in the Faubourg Saint-Marceau, Jean Sonnet, who had established the supremacy of representatives over generals, Godet, that man of ill omen, to whom the queen one evening at the Tuileries had shown the sleeping dauphin. Godet kissed the child on the forehead and beheaded the father. The chimerical Salle, who denounced the intrigues of the mountain with Austria, Sillery, the cripple of the right, and Couthon, the paralytic of the left. Laus de Duperet, who, upon being called a villain by a certain journalist, invited him to dinner, saying, Oh, villain simply means a man whose opinions differ from our own. Rabot Saint-Étienne, who began his almanac in 1790 with these words, The revolution is over. Quinette, one of those who hastened the downfall of Louis XVI. The Jansenist Camus, who compiled the civil constitution of the clergy, believed in the miracles of the deacon of Paris, and prostrated himself every night before an image of Christ seven feet high, nailed to his chamber wall. The priest Fauchet, who, together with Camille de Moulon, was instrumental in bringing about the 14th of July. Isnard, guilty of saying, Paris will be destroyed, at the very moment when Brunswick was saying, Paris will be burned. Jacob Dupont, who was the first man to proclaim himself an atheist, and to whom Robespierre replied, Atheism is aristocratic. Langevinet, a stern, sagacious, and valiant Breton. Ducot, the Orealis of Boyer-Fonfred. Ribéqui, the Pylades of Barbaroux, who tended his resignation because Robespierre had not as yet been guillotined. Richaud, who was opposed to the permanency of sections. La Source, who uttered the murderous apothem, Woe be unto grateful nations! and who at the foot of the scaffold was to contradict himself by those haughty words flung to the members of the mountain, We are dying because the nation slumbers. When it awakes, your turn will come. Diroteau, who in abolishing the inviolability of the crown unconsciously forged his own axe and reared his own scaffold. Charles Villat, who shielded his conscience behind this protest, I will not vote beneath the axe. Louvet, the author of Faublas, who was to end as a librarian at the Palais Royal, with Lodoisca at the desk. Mercier, the author of the Tableau de Paris, who exclaimed, Every king felt of his neck on the 21st of January. Marek, who had the care of the faction of ancient limits. The journalist Kara, who at the foot of the scaffold said to the executioner, It is provoking to die. I should like to have seen the result. Viget, who called himself a grenadier of the 2nd Battalion of Mayenne-et-Loire, and who, when threatened by the public tribunes, cried, I move that at the first murmur of the tribunes we all withdraw and, saber in hand, march upon Versailles. Bouzot, who was doomed to die of hunger, and Valazé to fall by his own dagger. Condorcet, 
who was to die at Bourg-la-Reine, or Bourg-Egalité, as it was called at that time, betrayed by a volume of Horace that he carried in his pocket. Pétion, whose fate it was to be adored by the populace in 1792, and devoured by the wolves in 1794, and twenty more besides, Ponticulante, Marbose, Lidon, Saint-Martin, Dussault, the translator of Juvenal, who had made the Hanover campaign, Boileau, Bertrand, Lesterpe Beauvais, Lesage, Gomère, Gardienne, Manvielle, Duplantier, Lacaze, Antiboule, and, foremost among them all, Barnave, whom men called Verniaud. On the other side, Antoine-Louis-Léon Florel de Saint-Just, a youth of twenty-three, whose pallid face, low forehead, regular profile, and deep, mysterious eyes conveyed an impression of profound melancholy. Merlin de Thionville, whom the Germans called Feuerteufel, the fire-devil, Merlin de Douai, the guilty author of the Law of the Suspects, Subrani, whom the Parisians, in the riot of the first Prairial, demanded for their general, the former curé, Le Bon, who now held a sabre in the hand that had once sprinkled holy water, Bilod Varenne, who foresaw the magistracy of the future when arbitrators would take the place of judges, Fabre d'Eglantine, who chanced upon the happy invention of the Republican calendar, and Rouget de Lille, the composer of the Marseillaise. No second inspiration ever visited either of these two men. Manuel, the attorney of the commune, who had said, A dead king is no less a man. Goujon, who marched into Tripstadt, Neustadt, and Spire, and who witnessed the flight of the Prussian army. Lacroix, a lawyer transformed into a general and made knight of Saint-Louis six days before August 10th. Fréron Thersite, son of Fréron Zoual. Ruth, the inexorable searcher of the iron cupboard, predestined to a great Republican suicide, who was to kill himself on the day of the death of the Republic. Fouché, with the soul of a demon and the face of a corpse. Camboulat, the friend of Père Duchesne, who used to say to Guillotin, You belong to the club of the Foyants, but your daughter belongs to the club of the Jacobins. Jagot, who replied to those who pitied the nakedness of the prisoners in those savage words, A prison is a dress of stone. Javogue, the frightful desecrator of the tombs of Saint-Denis. Ocelon, himself a proscriber, who sheltered one of the proscribed, Madame Chari, in his own house. Pontabol, who, while presiding over the assembly, gave the tribunes the signal for applause or disapproval. The journalist Robert, Mademoiselle Caraglio's husband, who wrote, Neither Robespierre nor Marat comes to my house. Robespierre is welcome to come whenever he chooses. Marat never. Garon Coulon, who, when Spain interceded on the occasion of the trial of Louis XVI, had haughtily requested that the assembly should not condescend to read the letter of one king pleading for another. The bishop Grégoire, who in the earlier part of his career was worthy to have belonged to the primitive church, but who afterwards, during the period of the empire, renounced his republican principles. Amar, who said, The whole earth condemns Louis XVI. To whom then shall we appeal for judgment? To the planets. Rouillère, who on the 21st of January opposed the firing of the cannon of the Pont Neuf, saying, A king's head ought to make no more noise in falling than the head of any other man. Chenier, brother of the poet André, Badier, one of those who placed a pistol on the tribune. Tanis, who used to say to Momoreau, I want Marat and Robespierre to embrace at my table. Where do you live? At Charenton. It would have surprised me had you said elsewhere, was Momoreau's reply. Legendre, who was the butcher of the French Revolution, as pride had been of the English Revolution. Come and be slaughtered, he cried to Lanjuinet, to which the latter replied, First pass a degree that I am an ox, if you please. Collot d'Herbois, that gloomy comedian, wearing, as it were, the antique mask with the double mouth, one of which said yes, while the other said no, approving on the one hand and blaming on the other, defaming Carrier in Nantes, and deifying Chaldier in Lyon, sending Robespierre to the scaffold and Marat to the Pantheon. Genicieux, who asked that the penalty of death should be imposed on whosoever should be found wearing a medal that bore the inscription, Louis Sixteenth, martyred. Léonard Bourdon, the schoolmaster, who had offered his house to the old man of Mount Jura, Topsent, the sailor, Goupilot, the lawyer, Lorient Lecointre, merchant, Duhem, the doctor, Sejant, the sculptor, David, the artist, and Joseph Egalité, the prince, and others besides. Lecointre Puiravaux, who called for a formal decree pronouncing Marat, insane, 
Robert Linday, the troublesome author of that devilfish whose head was the Committee of Public Safety, and whose 21,000 arms embraced France in the shape of revolutionary committees. Leboeuf, on whom Giret Dupré, in his Noël des Faux Patriotes, wrote this line, Leboeuf vite le gendre et bugla. Thomas Paine, the benevolent American, Anacarsis Klutz, the millionaire, a German baron, who, although an atheist, was still a man of sincere purpose and a follower of Hébert, the upright Lebas, a friend of the Duplais, Rovere, one of those men whom one occasionally meets who indulge in wickedness for its own sake, a variety of amateur more common than we might imagine, Charlier, who wished to address aristocrats with the familiar vous, the elegiac and cruel Talien, who was to bring about the ninth Thermidor out of pure love of it, Cambacés, a lawyer, who finally became a prince, Carrier, another lawyer, who turned into a tiger, Laplanche, who once exclaimed, I demand priority for the alarm gun. Thuriot, who wished the jurors of the Revolutionary Tribunal to vote aloud. Bourdon de Loise, who provoked Chambon to challenge him, denounced Paine, and in his turn was denounced by Hébert. Fayot, who proposed to dispatch an incendiary army into the Vendée. Tavot, who on the 13th of April acted as a sort of mediator between the Gironde and the Mountain. Vernier, who suggested that the leaders of the Gironde and the mountain should be sent to serve as common soldiers, Rubel, who shut himself up in Mayence, Bourbot, whose horse was killed under him at Saumur, Guimbertot and Jard Panvilliers, the commanders of the army of the Cherbourg coast and that of La Rochelle, Le Carpentier, who was in charge of the squadron of Cancale, Robergeau, for whom the ambush of Rastat was lying in wait, Pierre de la Marne, who wore in camp his former major's epaulettes, Lavasseur de la Sarthe, who by a single word induced Serent, commander of the battalion of Saint-Armand, to kill himself, Rivechon, Moret, Bernard de Sainte, Charles Richard, de Quignot, and towering above them all a Mirabeau whom men called Danton. Belonging to neither of these parties, and yet holding both in awe, rose the man Robespierre. 5. Below crouched dismay, which may be noble, and fear, which cannot fail to be contemptible. Beneath all these passions, this heroism and devotion, this rage, might be seen the gloomy multitude of the anonymous. The shoals of the assembly were called the plain, comprising the entire floating element. Men who are in doubt, who hesitate, retreat, temporize, mistrustfully watching one another. The mountain and the Gironde were the chosen few, the plain was the crowd. The plain was summed up and expressed in Sieus. Sieus was a man of a naturally profound mind, full of chimerical projects. He had paused at the third estate, and had never been able to rise as high as the people. Certain minds are constituted to rest midway. Sieus called Robespierre a tiger, who returned the compliment by calling him a mole. He was a philosopher who had attained prudence, if not wisdom. He was a courtier, rather than the servant, of the revolution. He took a spade and went to work with the people in the Champ de Mars, hauling the same cart with Alexander de Beauharnais. He urged others to energetic labors which he never performed himself. He said to the Girondists, Put the cannon on your own side. There are philosophers who are natural wrestlers, and they, like Condorcet, joined the party of Verniaud, or like Camille de Moulin, that of Danton. There are philosophers who value their lives, and those who belonged to this class followed Sieus. The best vats have their dregs. Still lower even than the plain was the marsh, whose stagnation was hideous to look upon, revealing as it did transparent egotism. There shivered the timid and silent expectation. Nothing could be more wretched, ignominious to the last degree, and yet feeling no shame, hiding their indignation, living in servitude, cherishing covert rebellion, possessed by a certain cynical terror, they had all the desperation peculiar to cowardice. They really preferred the Gironde, and yet they chose the mountain. When the final result depended on them, they went over to the successful side. They surrendered Louis XVI to Verniaud, Danton to Robespierre, and Robespierre to Tallien. They put Marat in the pillory during his lifetime, and deified him after his death. They showed themselves the partisans of the very cause which they suddenly turned against. They seemed to possess an instinct for jostling the infirm. Since they had joined the cause with the understanding that it was a strong one, any sign of wavering seemed to them equivalent to treason. They were the majority, the power, and the fear. Hence springs the audacity of the base. Hence the 31st of May, the 11th Germinal, the 9th Thermidor. Tragedies where dwarfs untied the knots of giants. 6. 
and among these passionate men were to be found others, fanciful dreamers. Utopia was there in all its varied forms, from the warlike, which admitted the scaffold, to the mild, which would fain abolish the penalty of death. A spectre or an angel, according as one viewed it from the throne or from the side of the common people, Men eager for the fray stood face to face with others who were contented to brood over their dreams of peace. The brain of Carnot created fourteen armies while Jean de Brie was revolving in his head a scheme of universal democratic federation. Amid this furious eloquence, amid these howling and thundering voices, some men there were who preserved a fruitful silence. Lacanal was silent, preoccupied with his system for national public education. Lanthenas held his peace absorbed in his plans for primary schools. Revelier Lepeau was silent, dreaming of philosophy when it should attain the dignity of religion. Others busied themselves with matters of minor importance and the details of everyday life. Guiton Morveau was interested in the improvement of the sanitary condition of hospitals, Maire in the abolishment of existing servitudes, Jean Bonsant andre in the suppression of arrest and imprisonment for debt, Rome in shops proposition, Dubois in the filing of the archives, Corin Fustier in the foundation of the Cabinet of Anatomy and the Museum of Natural History, Guillaumard in the navigation of rivers and the damming of the Scheldt. Men were fanatical about art, even monomaniacs on the subject. On the 21st of January, at the very time when the head of monarchy was falling on the Place de la Révolution, Bézard, the representative of the Oise, went to see a picture of Rubens which had been found in a garret in the Rue Saint-Lazare. Artists, orators, and prophets, giants like Danton, and men as childlike as Clutes, gladiators and philosophers, were all straining for the same goal, progress. Nothing disconcerted them. The greatness of the convention consisted in its efforts to discover what degree of reality there might be in that which men call the impossible. At one end stood Robespierre with his eyes fixed upon the law, and at the other Condorcet gazing with equal steadiness on duty. Condorcet was a man enlightened, but given to dreaming. Robespierre possessed executive ability, and sometimes, in the final crises of worn-out conditions, execution signifies extermination. Revolutions have two slopes, the one ascending, the other descending, whereon we meet at different stages each season in its turn, from the freezing to the flowery, and each zone produces men suited to the climate, from those who live under the hot rays of the sun to those who dwell with the thunderbolt. 7. People pointed out to each other the bend in the left-hand passage, where Robespierre whispered to Clavier's friend Garat that terrible epigram, Clavier a conspiré partout où il a respiré. In this same bend, well adapted for privacy and suppressed indignation, Fabrique d'Eglantine quarreled with Rome, reproaching him for having disfigured his calendar by changing Fervidor into Thermidor. People pointed out the corner where, elbow to elbow, sat the seven representatives of Haute-Garonne, who, being the first called upon to pronounce their verdict upon Louis Sixteenth, had thus answered one after the other, Malais, death, Delma, death, Perjean, death, Calais, death, Iral, death, Julian, death, Desabi, death, eternal reverberation that fills all history, and since the birth of human justice has continued to send forth a funereal echo from the walls of the tribunal. Amid this stormy sea of faces, one man would point out to another the individuals whose tragic votes had caused that fearful din. Paganel, who cried, Death! A king serves no purpose save by his death. Milode, who said, If death had never been known, we must today have invented it. Old Raffron de Trouillet, who exclaimed, A speedy death. Goupilot, who cried, The scaffold at once, delay but aggravates the pain of death. Sieus, who with solemn brevity uttered the single word, death. Thuriot, who, rejecting the appeal to the people proposed by Bouzeau, said, What? The primary assemblies? Forty-four thousand tribunals? An endless trial. The head of Louis Sixteenth would have time to grow grey before it fell. Augustin von Robespierre, who exclaimed after his brother, I ignore that humanity which massacres the people and pardons despots. Death! The demand for a reprieval means a substitution of the appeal to tyrants for the appeal to the people. Fusidoir, who took the place of Bernardin de Saint-Pierre, saying, The shedding of human blood is abhorrent to me, but the blood of a king is not human blood. Death. Jean Bonsant-André, who said, No nation can be free until the tyrant dies. La Vicomterie, who expressed himself in this formula, 
So long as the tyrant breathes, liberty is strangled. Death. Chateauneuf-Rondon, who cried, The death of Louis the Last! Guillardon, who suggested, Let him be executed at the Barrière en Versailles. The Barrière en Versailles was the Barrière du Trône. Tellier, who said, Let us forge a cannon of the caliber of Louis XVI's head to fire upon the enemy. And among those inclined to mercy, Gentil was one who said, I vote for imprisonment. He who makes a Charles first makes a Cromwell likewise. Bancal, who said, Exile, I should like to see the first king of the earth sentenced to earn his living at a trade. Albuis, who said, Exile, let this living spectre wander around among the thrones. Zandiacome, who said, I vote for imprisonment. Let us keep Capet alive for a scarecrow. Chayon, who said, Let him live. I do not approve of killing a man for Rome to canonize. While sentences like these fell one after the other from these severe lips, making their way into history, bedizened women in low-necked dresses sat in the boxes, and with list in hand counted the votes as they were given, pricking each name with a pin. Where tragedy has entered in, horror and pity remain. To see the convention, at whatsoever epoch of its reign, was to witness anew the judgment of the last of the Capets. The legend of the 21st of January seemed to be interwoven with all its acts. The formidable assembly was composed of those men whose fatal breath put out the ancient torch of monarchy, which had burned for eighteen centuries. The decisive trial of all kings in the person of one seemed to be the starting point of the great war which it waged against the past. At whatsoever session of the convention one might be present, the shadow cast by the scaffold of Louis XVI never failed to make itself evident. The spectators told each other about the resignations of Cassant and Roland, and also about Duchatel, the deputy of the Deux Sèvres, who, being ill, caused himself to be carried to the assembly, and on his deathbed voted against the execution of the king, an act which excited Marat to laughter. People looked for the representative forgotten today who, after a session that had lasted thirty-seven hours, overcome by fatigue, fell asleep on his bench, and being roused by the usher when his turn came to vote, half opened his eyes, murmured, Death, and fell asleep again. At the time when the death sentence of Louis XVI was passed, Robespierre had eighteen months to live, Danton fifteen, Verniaud nine, Marat five months and three weeks, and Le Pelletier saint Fargeau one day. Brief and terrible was the breath of life in those days. 8. The people had a window opening on the convention in the shape of the public tribunes, and when this window proved inadequate, they opened the door, and the street population poured in upon the assembly. The invasions of the crowd into this senate presented one of the most striking spectacles known to history. Generally, these eruptions were amicable. The street fraternized with the curule chair. But friendship with a people who had once, in the course of three hours, taken the cannon of the Envalides and forty thousand muskets besides, was a somewhat formidable relationship. At every moment a procession interrupted the session. There were deputations admitted to the bar, petitions, expressions of respect, offerings. The pike of honor of the Faubourg Saint-Antoine was brought in, borne by women. The English offered twenty thousand pairs of shoes for our barefooted soldiers. Citizen Arnoux, said the moniteur, the curé of Aubignan, in command of the battalion of the Drôme, requests permission to march to the frontier, and begs that his parish may be kept for him. The delegates from the sections came, bringing in wheelbarrows, dishes, patens, chalices, monstrances, heaps of gold, silver, and gilt, offerings to the country from this ragged crowd, who asked, as a reward, permission to dance the Carmagnole before the convention. Chenard, Narbonne, and Valliere came to sing stanzas in honor of the mountain. The section of Mont Blanc brought the bust of the pelletier, and a woman placed a red cap on the head of the president, who embraced her. The citoyens of the section du Maille strewed flowers before the legislators. The peoples of the country, escorted by music, came to thank the convention for having paved the way for the prosperity of the century. The women of the section of the Gardes Françaises brought roses. The women of the section of the Champs-Élysées presented a crown of oak leaves. The women of the section of the temple came to the bar and took an oath to wed only true Republicans. The section of Molière presented a medal of Franklin, which, by a formal decree, was suspended from the wreath of the Statue of Liberty. The foundlings, who had been declared the children of the Republic, filed by, dressed in the national uniform. Young girls of the 93rd section came arrayed in long white gowns, and the next day the moniteur contained this line. The president receives a bouquet from the innocent hands of a fair young girl. The orators saluted the crowds and sometimes flattered them, saying to the multitude, 
Thou art infallible, thou art irreproachable, thou art sublime. The lower classes are childlike, they are fond of sugar plums. Sometimes a riot would invade the assembly, entering in a fury and departing pacified, like the Rhone flowing through Lake Leman, which is muddy enough on its entrance, but flows out as blue as the sky. If it continued turbulent, Henriot would now and then order his furnaces for heating the bullets to be brought up to the entrance of the Tuileries. 9. While this assembly was throwing off the shackles of revolution, it was also promoting civilization. It was a furnace, to be sure, but it was likewise a forge. In this cauldron where terror was bubbling, progress also fermented. From that chaos of shadows and a tempestuous whirlwind of clouds spread immense rays of light parallel with the eternal laws, rays that have since rested on the horizon, forever visible in the sky of the nations, and which are called justice, tolerance, goodness, reason, truth, and love. The convention proclaimed this grand axiom, the liberty of one citizen ends where that of another begins, thus summing up in two lines the essence of social science. It proclaimed the sanctity of the poor, as well as of the infirm in the persons of the blind and of the mutes, whose guardianship had been assumed by the state. It honored maternity in the person of the girl mother whom it comforted and lifted up, childhood in the orphans adopted by the state, and innocence in the accused, who was indemnified by the government after his acquittal. It branded the traffic in blacks and abolished slavery. It proclaimed civil consolidation. It decreed gratuitous instruction. It organized national education by the establishment of the normal school in Paris, the central school in the cities, and the primary school in the communes. It founded conservatories and museums. It systematized the code as well as the weights and measures, and the method of calculation by decimals. It established the finances of France upon a firm basis, and brought about an era of public credit after the long monarchical bankruptcy. It established communication by telegraph. It provided almshouses for old age and the improved hospitals for sickness. It gave the Polytechnic School to the cause of education, the Bureau of Longitude to Science, and the Institute to the Domain of Human Intellect. It was at once cosmopolitan and national. Of the 11,210 decrees issued by the convention, the proportion of philanthropic as compared with the political was as two to one. It proclaimed universal morality to be the basis of society, and universal conscience the basis of the law. And it must be remembered that all these reforms, the abolition of slavery, the proclamation of universal brotherhood, the protection of humanity, the elevation of the human conscience, the law of labor changed into a privilege, thus transforming the burden into a comfort, the consolidation of the national wealth, the enlightenment and protection of children, the dissemination of knowledge and science, a light set upon all the mountain tops, help proffered to the suffering, and the promulgation of all principle, were accomplished by the convention, with the Vendée gnawing like Hydra at its entrails, and the kings of the world leaping like tigers upon its shoulders. 10. Astonishing assembly! The human, the inhuman, and the superhuman, every type in short might be found there, an epic accumulation of antagonisms, Guillotin avoiding David, Bazir insulting Chabot, Godet mocking Saint-Just, Vagnot despising Danton, Louvet attacking Robespierre, Bouzeau denouncing Egalité, Chambon branding Pache, all hating Marat. And how many more names might yet be registered? Armonville, called Bonnet Rouge because at the sessions he invariably wore a Phrygian cap, a friend of Robespierre, who demanded that the latter should be guillotined after Louis XVI, to restore the equilibrium. Monsieur, a colleague and counterpart of the kindly Lamourette, the bishop, destined to leave his name to a kiss. Le Hardy du Morbihan, stigmatizing the priests of Brittany. Barrère, the man of majorities, who presided when Louis XVI appeared at the bar, and who bore the same relation to Pamela as Louvet to Lodoisca. The orator Donou, who said, Let us gain time. Dubois Conseil, who listened to Marat's whispered confidences. The Marquis de Chateauneuf, Laclos, Hérault de Seychelles, who fell back before Henriot, crying, Gunners to your pieces! Julien, who compared the mountain to Thermopylae. Gamon, who demanded that a public tribune should be reserved exclusively for women. Laloy, who awarded the honors of the session to Bishop Gobel, who came to the convention to exchange his mitre for the red cap. Le Comte, who cried, So we pay homage to the priest who unfrocks himself! Perraud, whose head was saluted by Boissy d'Angras, leaving to history the solution of the query, 
Did Boissy d'Anglas salute the victim in the person of the head or the assassins in the form of the pike? The two brothers Duprat, one a member of the mountain, the other a Girondist, who hated each other as did the two brothers Genier. Many a word has been uttered in this tribune in moments of excitement, which has sometimes unconsciously to the speaker aroused the fatal spirit of revolution, and so influenced the existing circumstances that a sense of discontent and passion suddenly sprang to life. As if displeased with what they heard, events seemed to take offense at the words of men, and catastrophes were precipitated by human speech. The reverberation of a voice in the mountain is sufficient to start an avalanche. The utterance of one superfluous word may be followed by a landslide, which might not have happened had no word been spoken. One might almost fancy that events develop a certain irascibility. Thus a mistaken word falling by chance from the lips of an orator cost Madame Elizabeth her head. Intemperance of language was the rule of the convention. In the discussions threats flew back and forth, crossing one another like sparks from a conflagration. Pétion. Come to the point, Robespierre. Robespierre. You are the point, Pétion. I shall come. You need have no fear. A voice. Death to Marat! Marat. When Marat dies, the city of Paris will be no more. And when Paris is gone, there is an end to the Republic. Biod Varenne rose to say, We wish to. Barère interrupted him. You speak in the plural like a king. And another day, Philippot, one of the members drew his sword upon me. Aldouan, President, call the assassin to order. The President, wait. Pani, President, I call you to order. A sally followed by an outburst of rude laughter. Le Cointre, the curé of chant de complains that his bishop Fauché forbids him to marry. A voice, I see no reason why Fauché, who has mistresses, should try to prevent other men from having wives. Another voice. Priest, take to thyself a wife. The tribunes mingled in the conversation and said thou to the members. One day the representative romps mounted to the tribune and, one of his sips being much larger than the other, a spectator called out to him, Turn that one towards the right since you have a cheek a la David. Such were the liberties that the people took with the convention. Once, however, during the uproar of the 11th of April, 1793, the president caused the disorderly person in the tribunes to be arrested. One day, during a session at which the venerable Buonarroti was present, Robespierre had the floor and spoke for two hours, never removing his eyes from Danton, sometimes looking straight at him, which was unpleasant enough, but when he looked at him sideways it was even more disagreeable. His thunders of eloquence were not without effect, ending by an indignant outburst full of ominous words. We know the intriguers and those who strive to corrupt as well as those who are corrupted. We know the traitors also. They are present in this assembly. They hear our voice. Our eyes are upon them, and our gaze pursues them. Let them look above their heads, and they will discover the sword of the law. Let them look into their conscience, and there behold their own infamy. Let them beware. When Robespierre had finished, Danton, with his half-closed eyes turned upwards and one arm hanging over the back of his chair, threw himself back and began to hum. Imprecations fell thick on every side. Conspirator! Assassin! Scoundrel! Seditious! Moderate! They denounced one another in the presence of the bust of Brutus standing there. Exclamations, insults, challenges. Angry glances interchanged, much shaking of fists, flashing of pistols and half-drawn daggers. An awful outblazing from the tribune. Some talked as if they were pushed up against the guillotine. Heads waved to and fro, frightened yet terrible. The multitude was like a volume of smoke blown always at once. Men of the mountain, Girondists, Foyantists, Moderates, Terrorists, Jacobins, Cordeliers, and the eighteen regicide priests. All these men, a mass of smoke driven about in every direction. 11. Spirits at the mercy of the wind, but a wind of preternatural power. It might be truthfully said, even of the chief among them, that to be a member of the convention was like being a wave of the ocean. The impetus came from above. There was an inherent force in the convention which might be called a will, not in the sense of an individual quality, but belonging to the assembly as a body. And this will was an idea, indomitable and boundless, which from the heavens above descended into the darkness below. Men called it revolution, and wherever it passed, some men were overthrown and others exalted. One would be scattered like foam, while another was dashed to pieces against the rocks. 
It kept its goal well in mind as it drove the maelstrom before it. To impute revolution to men is like attributing the tides to the waves. Revolution is a manifestation of the unknown. You may call it good or evil, according as you aspire to the future or cling to the past, but leave it to its authors. It would seem to be the joint product of great events and great individualities, but is in reality the result of events alone. Events plan the expenditures for which men pay the bills. Events dictate, men sign. The 14th of July was signed by Camille de Moulins, the 10th of August by Danton, the 2nd September by Marat, the 21st of September by Grégoire, and the 21st of January by Robespierre. But de Moulins, Danton, Marat, Grégoire, and Robespierre are merely clerks. The majestic and mysterious compiler of those grand pages was Almighty God, wearing the mask of destiny. Robespierre believed in God. He did, indeed. Revolution is one form of the eternal phenomenon that circumscribes us on all sides, and which we call necessity. In the presence of this mysterious complication of benefits and wretchedness rises the wherefore of history. Because, this answer may be the reply of one who knows nothing, as well as that of one who knows all. In the presence of these monstrous catastrophes which both devastate and revivify civilization, one hesitates to sit in judgment on the details. To blame or to praise men on account of the result is very much like praising or criticizing the ciphers on account of the sum total. The inevitable is sure to happen. If the wind is to blow, it will blow. But the eternal serenity remains untouched by these blasts. Like the starlit sky above the tempest, truth and justice sit enthroned above all revolutions. 12. Such was this immeasurable convention, like an entrenched encampment of the human race attacked simultaneously by all the powers of darkness, the campfires of an army of ideas besieged by its foes, an immense bivouac of human intellect on the slope of a precipice. Nothing in history can be compared to this assembly, which contained within itself senate and people, conclave and street crossing, areopagus and public square, tribunal and accused. The convention always yielded to the wind, but this wind came from the mouth of the people, and it was the breath of God. And today, after the lapse of eighty years, every time the convention presents itself to the mind of any man whomsoever, whether philosopher or historian, he cannot but pause and meditate, since no man can be indifferent to that grand procession of shadows. End of section 27